Welcome back to Libertarian Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. This is Sean Osborne, and this is going to be the third and final episode of the speakers that I recorded from the Libertarian Convention in Visalia, California. If you missed the first two, we had Marshall Byrd and Hotep Jesus. Be sure and check those out. On today's episode, we have Thaddeus Russell, the historian. And I think you're going to love this. Check it out and enjoy. Hi, thanks for listening to the Liberty Blues Network. Make sure and check out all three podcasts on our network. We have the Liberty Blues, a progressive and a libertarian walking to a bar, and Libertarian Los Angeles. Let us know what you think of the podcast and rate, review, follow, or whatever you can, wherever you listen. Thanks. Now back to the show. trying to destroy the state's monopoly on education. He's done a lot of other great things under his belt, too. A a podcast, he's a really great media personality, and a really fascinating background and uh, journey to libertarianism. So I'm just going to let him take it over. Thanks so much for being here. journey go to? Because I don't know if I've taken that. In fact, I think I'm here to talk to you about this. Um, so first of all, you want to hear the, um, an amazing thing? Yes. You know, that was his first political speech. <laughs> That's his first like formal speech ever, like in front of, you know, I was like, how did that happen? Okay. Uh, second thing is, uh, Hotep's been told you I have known that show much longer than I've known Brian. So I started watching that show three years ago. Wow. Yeah, and I was like, I'll never be able to talk to this guy. He's too cool for me. <laughs> um, it is uh, the sharpest and funniest political show on the internet. Straight up. Thank you. Yeah. Period, no doubt about it. I know I have some backup here on this. Um, just so you know, I'm not a pandering white liberal. <laughs> the most despicable species on earth. You gotta stop fucking eating. I've been waiting for a year to tell you this. When we started eating on, on the show, man, I was like, this cannot happen. This is not professional. I'm going to call your parents. I know your dad will not be happy with that. I know your dad will not be happy with that. Jamaican military men will not be happy with that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, as Kelly said, I, uh, <laughs> when she described when Kelly described me as a libertarian, thereby insulting me. No, I, uh, There's Kelly. I'm Kelly. Oh, <laughs> that's why I'm Kelly guy. Oh, now I see what happened. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, I just have too much to talk to you guys about. I don't know what. I feel like I should field questions, or should go from there. I have like a few things. All right, so we'll start kind of heavy, and then and then be different kind of heavy. So. 
You guys heard of this person, um, Nicholas Sarwar? Who? I didn't know him either. I was like, who's this? So, I mean, like, friends of mine are like, this guy's an asshole. I'm like, whatever, who cares? Because um, I'm not a libertarian. I don't give a shit about the LP. No offense, but I don't. Um, maybe I will when you guys take over. That's the only reason I'm here, because, you know, you might be running things sometime in the future, so it's always nice to the man. You guys might be the man, you know? That's the first thing, you know? Larry Sharp's right there. He was going to be the man. Like, you think about it. Like, what does it mean to be the man? That means you run the goddamn machine. The killing machine is yours. Like, they hand you the killing machine. You win the election and then, you know, inauguration, and they're like, here's the death ray. Like, and you can't just be like, okay, I'm just going to dismantle it. Maybe you can't. I don't know. Like, what's the plan? Like if Ron Paul had won, like what was he gonna do? Anyway, whatever. All right, <laughs> Nicholas Starwork. So I hadn't. I, I'm like, I don't care about this guy. I mean, I just heard these vague. I just don't fucking care. Neither do we. Yeah. So um, the George Floyd uh, verdict came in, and I did like I admitted just a straight up whataboutism because I'm always mad about white people getting ignored who get shot by police. So I said on that day, I just said, Daniel Shaver was shot to death on his hands and knees in a hotel hallway. And the media didn't pay attention to it, and there were no protests. Okay. So I get like dozens and dozens, because everyone's seen the video. It's the worst cop shooting we've ever seen. Right. It's the worst thing we've ever seen the state to, other than like war. Right? Yeah. So, you know, dozens and dozens of people saying what I, we all feel about that, right? Um, until <laughs> six, ten hours later, this a tweet, a reply, from Nicholas Sarwark. <laughs> and I have never had any relationship with him at all. He wasn't, he didn't follow me, I didn't follow him. Why, why is he tweeting? And what he said, here's the tweet. CNN, colon, and then three little news stories about Daniel Shaver. And it's MSNBC, colon, and then three little news stories they ran about Daniel Shaver. And he said, protest colon, and then three little news stories about little dinky 10-person protests with 10 white people in Arizona wearing a few BLM t-shirts. <laughs> and that was it. That was an entire tweet. From the recent former chair of the Libertarian Party, the national one, right? Am I right about that? Yeah. I'm, I'm getting the parties right. This is not the, the, the Lipper Love Cops party that he was part of. <laughs> So I said, I was just, I said, Nicholas, does this mean that you think that the coverage of the Daniel Shaving killing was sufficient and adequate? And you know what his answer was to me? God only knows. He says, well, those are subjective terms. <laughs> <laughs> One more time. You are the chairman of the Libertarian Party, and this is a cop shooting. Man's on the floor, hands and knees. Really? And that's what you have to say. You're going to parse words. He says, well, according to whose standards? And I said, yours, Nick. I'm interested in your standards. What are your standards? Is this adequate, co has that killing been given adequate coverage in the media according to your standards? No. Two days went by. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. 
And you know, at this point, I do now care who Nicholas Starkey is. <laughs> and I'm awfully confused about it. So I just was like, fuck, I woke up on him. You know what? I'm just going to tweet about this fucker. And I said, the recent former chair of the National Libertarian Party apparently thinks that Daniel Sh the coverage of Daniel Shaver's murder was adequate and sufficient. And then he jumped in and said, well, I was in Arizona then, and I said all kinds of things about the murder of Daniel Shaver. You can look it up. Anyway, so as a, when he said, when he said, uh, you know, it's subjective, these terms, you know, like it depends on your standard, like the, the French postmodernist philosopher in me thought, oh, that could be interesting. <laughs> but as someone who doesn't want to be shot dead on the fucking floor by cops, <laughs> and as someone who is at least friends with a lot of libertarians, and was soon to be speaking at some kind of libertarian organization, I thought, that's a fucking disgrace. And how in the world did you exist for how, six years? Yep. <clears throat> it was tough. And so this was coming right up, too. So I was like, oh, now I understand what all the Mises people are up about. Because <laughs> this fucking guy, and, and I assume he had lots of people vote for him, right, to get there? Yeah. yeah. How is that possible? Daniel Shaver, you've seen the video, right? To argue with me and to suggest that that got adequate coverage in the media? No video was ever played on CNN or MSNBC. It was, it was rewrites of Associated Press stories on their blog. That's what he got. Fuck that shit. Um, <laughs> But it, it, it's about what he's saying about being yourself. And like I think what he meant about loyalty, like he was loyal to his friends, and I'm pretty sure what you meant was you guys should be loyal to your principles, to the principles, right? I still can't get over that, though. Like I'm arguing with the form, recent former chair that I, do I need to say it again? Right. <laughs> so yeah, um, and here's the thing. Because I know I sort of do know the story about Sarwark, right? So he became an SJW. And by the way, um, like he always thinks people are compromised. But and I, I'm, I'm, I'm less like that, although he's usually right, <laughs> or often is right, you know? But like I'm not built that way. But I'm looking at Sark, I'm like, dude, you work for the CIA. Like, there's no, there's no other explanation for this behavior. Like, you can't seriously. Like, to parse words about the killing of Daniel Shaver. So I had Lainey Sweet, Daniel Shaver's widow, on my show the next fucking week. <coughs> Nicholas Sarwark, that's what we should be doing. And it's, and it's really not that hard, because Lainey is running a campaign to get justice. Because guess who got off totally scot-free with yeah. this? Guess who is still receiving a pension? And there's two of them, by the way. You know that the shooter, I didn't even know this, Brailsford, the one who actually fired, he's actually not that culpable. It's the fucker who was sh shouting the crazy, confusing instructions at Danny. You know where he lives now? Yeah. The Philippines. <laughs> he retired the day after they killed Danny. Mm -hmm. the, the year after they killed Danny, and he moved to the Philippines and hasn't been seen. Scott Free, pension for life. And Nicholas Sarwark wants to talk about words. 
I'm like, take my postmodernism course for that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you want to talk about real politics and life and my life and people who look like me who also get shot a whole lot of the time, and there are about a half a million people who look like me who are in prison right now, and no one ever says a fucking thing about it. Because they're white. Nicholas Sarwark thought this, the, at the coverage of Daniel Shaver's execution like an animal was sufficient, and I have to think it was because Daniel Shaver to Nick Sarwark was white. And that is exactly what identity politics gets you. Sorry, it gets you that, or it gets you Nazism. Because the left went hog wild on the identity politics, race is everything, race is everything, race is everything, race is everything. And so then all these guys on the right were like, yeah, you're right, race is everything. <laughs> <laughs> And the people on the left are like, you're not supposed to do that. We're the only ones allowed to do that. You're, mad, you're bad Nazis and racists. And they're like, no, we're just doing what you told us to do. We, we think that race is the most important thing, too. So let's have this fight. And that will lead to a really wonderful society where people of different colors will constantly talk about the different colors. And that's really all we should talk about. So yeah, I mean, identity politics, as I understand it, this is why you guys form in a sense, right? By the way, oh, real quick, we got to deal with this, and you need to talk about this a lot. Um, woke, stop using the word, just so you know, <laughs> the left doesn't use the word. Only right-wing people use the word woke. They don't use the word. So call it something else, but you look stupid. <laughs> they just don't. I mean, it's no credit to them for saying just stop. But anyway, so that yeah, policy. What do like, we call it? Yeah, what do we call it? Well, I mean, identity. In academia, we used to call it identity politics when it arose in the 1990s when I was in grad school. That's when it started, basically, and got a name, right? But it's a different politics than the than the old school Democratic Party, than the, than the Obama, Biden, Clinton wing, right? And that'll be a whole interesting thing we can talk about later, but like this identity politics shit is very similar to Maoism, right? Because it relies on cultural shaming. Notice that? Cultural Marxism. Yeah, I don't like cultural Marxism as a term, but anyway, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, it, it borrows a lot from Maoism, right? Um, the left will actually use the phrase IP or IBP. They'll actually use that phrase and talk to each other. They'll actually say, you know, it's, I, it's IP or it's IDP, identity politics. Oh, I, yeah, yeah, They'll yeah. They'll actually use that phrase, IDP or IP. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, they're proud of it. Um, no, I mean, I've been in, when I was in the graduate school in the 90s, that was, everybody was either an identitarian or not an identitarian, and there was a big fight anyway. Um, oh, yeah, so right, so check it out. So the identity politics wing, you know, like AOC, Ilhan Omar, blah, 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 but just that shit, that race is everything, gender is everything, sexuality is everything, yada, yada. Trans, trans issue is the most important issue in the history of civilization. Um, <laughs> so they rely on shaming, which is different. Like, the old Democrats sucked ass and built the American empire, and they are responsible for the entire cathedral we are living in, don't get me wrong, but they didn't do that. This is different. Mm. They also weren't eliminationists toward their opponents, right? They wanted their loyal opponents in the Republican Party because the Republican Party was their bitches mm. in the imperial project. The Republican Party of the 20th century was simply a junior partner in the building of the American Empire. Mm -hmm. Did you not notice that? Mm -hmm. 
right? You do know this, right? Wilson built the damn thing, FDR expanded it, then all the rest of the liberals built it up and up and up, and then Reagan and Nixon come along, and they're like, yeah, this is a good idea too, we'll fucking kill people as well. Um, <laughs> It's a, it's a democratic, it's a, it's a progress, it's not even a conservative, it's a progressive democratic project of the last hundred years. All those bases, those 800 bases, right? The us as the superpower, the hegemony in all ways, the United States, that's a progressive, liberal, democratic party project. The Republicans just got dragged along with it because as he was saying, they're, the Republicans historically have been the dumb. Reason. Pause. Because New recording too. With anybody, because they control all the cultural institutions, right? They control all the means of communication where all the arguments happen. And if you control that, you don't have to argue with anybody. And so try arguing with a prestigious Ivy League professor, uh, a scholar of political science who has 10 books under his belt. Try to argue with what any one of you could destroy him. Mm. I've seen it happen. A time and a the few times when they have the nerve to get on camera and debate someone with fundamentally different ideas in there, not just like fucking around the edges, they fall <laughs> apart. I've seen dumbass Steven Crowder, fucking comedian, <laughs> asshole guy, like annihilate a University of Pennsylvania political science, like highly revered, Adolf Reed, you gotta watch this in some sense. <laughs> Annihilated him. Adolf Reed like ripped off his microphone and walked off because he was so ashamed. He was so humiliated by Stephen Crowder. You can't win an argument with Stephen Crowder and your professor of political science. That must mean you never argue with people. If you can't beat that little cracker, like you can't beat anybody. Seriously. All right. Oh, China. Okay, so. Uh -oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In the last, just in the last, like, it's all because of Steve Bannon. I've been watching Steve Bannon every day for six months, and so I'm a complete hawk now. Um, uh, we, need, we need to go to war. I'm just kidding. Um, but they're making some points over there, and everybody needs to pay attention to the MAGA movement. They are about to, they are taking over the Republican Party, uh, and it's like, everybody in my world doesn't even pay attention. And I'm like, you are idiots. They're gonna they're taking over the Republican Party and this is transforming American politics. So anyway. Alright. So the identity politics wing of the Democratic Party, which is right now ascendant, have you noticed Joe Biden, who used to love locking up black people, is now talking about black bodies being broken? <laughs> Clearly, like they've seized his mind, right? And seized the party for the moment. I don't know if that's gonna last. Okay, so the shaming is very similar to Maoist cultural shaming. CC, Chinese struggle Communist Party strategy, struggle session. Yeah, we've basically been having national struggle sessions constantly, right? <laughs> so that's one convergence. Convergence. Is Clint here? Not yet. I was just on his show when we talked about this just a week ago. Anyway, um, this just all occurred to me on his show like a week ago while we were talking. So there's a convergence there. Look at the economy the economies of the two countries. So China, obviously, is not an orthodox communist country anymore in terms of economics, right? What is it? They have private ownership of capital, don't they? Mm -hmm. Yet the government calls the shots often, essentially manages the whole economy quite closely. 
That is called what? Fascism. Okay, you guys are too smart. Fine. <laughs> Which is the basis of fascism. Right, okay. Um, so over here, in the good United States, where we love liberty and freedom, <laughs> have you seriously noticed that they've stopped using the words? Yes. When was the last time you heard a Democrat use the word freedom? When was the last time you heard a Republican? And liberty, by the way, I recommend getting rid of liberty. Just change, the Libertarian Party should be something else. <laughs> as soon as I hear liberty, I'm like, I can already see like the eagle on the flag when the yellow and the, all this shit not done. It's just, and brand, branding, branding. <laughs> so here's the idea about branding also. You want to establish a brand that people don't automatically just see, oh, that's for the garbage, right? <laughs> oh, they're libertarians and weird, and we don't have to deal with them. So you have to have a brand that is in your face and powerful and strong. Yeah. Was the People's Party ever a great name? <laughs> was that the name of it? No, I, there was a long history. There was a People's Party. There was a People's Party in the 19th century, yeah. back to your anti-Mason era, yeah, um, which was the populists. Yeah. The original populists, that's Bannon's forebears. So, I mean, that's just, check that out, right? And then I've been finding out from Bannon and company. <laughs> it's funny that I watch them because it's like, they love the family, the nuclear family. Man, they love that, and I fucking hate it. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, easy. We'll, we'll talk about it later. Um, um, we, have, we have major differences, but it's fine. Um, it's all about family, God. Oh man, it's like he has a Catholic on every show to give a sermon and talk about the Catholic Church and this and that, whatever. Uh, the military, they love them some military. Now they're really good on the empire though, which is the re one of the reasons I pay attention to them, but they love them some military and they are not afraid to go kill some Arabs real quick. Yeah. Um, oh, immigration, right? So of course I don't even want borders <laughs> right? I mean, I don't want any immigration policy at all. So I am polar opposite from these guys on almost everything, yet I find them fascinating because their critique of the cathedral is spot on. And they need to be, and they're taking over the Republican Party, and there's about oh, 60 to 70 million of them, apparently. You know? So Trumpism, MAGA, ain't going nowhere, yet the establishment is barely paying attention to this. Meanwhile, the progressives in the Democratic Party, oh, I find out from Bannon that, that all these institutions, universities, I used to work at these colleges that suddenly had all these Chinese students <coughs> in my classes, like who couldn't speak English, who didn't know what the fuck they were doing there, listening to me talk about postmodern theory, but they were getting lots of money, giving lots of money. And there was institutes, I found out, at my colleges that were in formal alliance with state-run universities in China. And at the time, I was like, oh, yeah, whatever, government universities, just like the University of Illinois. No, they're run by the Communist Party of China, the CCP. So that means that these institutions where I was working at in the United States were in a formal alliance with the Communist Chinese Party. Chinese Communist Party. And I found out that there's institutions across the country, especially high-level cultural institutions, that are totally mobbed up by the CCP. Um, so I'm seeing quite a convergence. And then on top of that, it turns out, it looks like, 
that we have been cooperating with them in developing bioweapons. Right? That's looking more and more to be the case. <coughs> that we helped them build bioweapons, including this thing called COVID-19. Uh oh. No, that's now they're pretty much even the mainstream. Even the mainstream media, you may have noticed in the last couple of weeks, is kind of like asking the questions that show that we're there over the target. Mm -hmm. um, we know that China conducted maneuvers in Canada. We know that when they had this con I don't know why I'm talking about this. We know that. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> I was going to talk about the 19th century, but whatever. Yes, yes, yes yeah, um, moving right now, right now, right now. It's time to move So, uh, this, like, this um, summit they had in Alaska, right, where fucking Tony Blinken, this State Department mass murderer, gets up there and, like, talks to the Chinese. And the Chinese guys are just like, you're a bunch of racists. Yeah. You're a bunch of racists. And they're like, yes, we're sorry. Uh, you know, so I'm really puzzled by this, and I'm wondering, I mean, so is the plan among the Democrats to co-manage the world with China? With the Chinese Communist Party? Is yes. That, yes. I, it did yes. not occur to me until then. Yes. Yes, that's what's happening. Conspiracy theorist. Okay, I'm gonna move on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna move on. Uh, prostitutes in the 19th century. Okay, so, <laughs> so yeah, no, I mean, I do think, um, I do think the Mises Caucus will take over the Libertarian Party. I do think they will run a, a slightly better campaign than Gary Johnson did. And, um, be of just a tad more sharp on his point making than Gary was. Uh, Gary was great to get high with. <laughs> I will say that about him. <laughs> what a nice guy. I I just I was in the green room in the, the Stossel show with him once, and he was just like standing there by himself, leaning against. This is when he was running. And he just—I was like—I looked at him like he's just like on his phone, he's just like all hunched over, he's like kind of high, you know. He's high all the time. And I was just like, Gary, man, you really should be like a contractor, you know, in Tucson or whatever, or Santa Fe. And this is why are you—you're too nice a guy to be a politician. Anyway, Dave is not too nice a guy. Yeah. <laughs> Dave is gonna fuck some people up. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I—I have been telling Dave for years uh, when he's on my show, like, Dave. I will do it. I will find the professor. I will pay them enough money that they will be willing to debate you. We're going to find a Harvard professor of political science to debate you, and you are going to crush them in public. Uh, to this day, I have not found a Harvard professor who's willing to do that. So, can you imagine that? Yeah. I can't. Political science, give us your best. Give us your award winners. I want the Nobel Prize, yeah. motherfuckers. Oh, yeah. Give, you pick. The top, the, I want the president of the American Political Science Association. I want your best to debate this comedian. <laughs> That's going to be a bad look for you, Harvard. <laughs> when my homie is running circles around your boy, right? I mean, come on. So, um, yeah, you when you take over the party, and Dave is a national figure. Wow. 
wow, that's going to be something, and gets like more than a million votes, which I think he will. Mm -hmm. Wow, damn, and way more. And then, and then, but <coughs> much, 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 much more importantly, he's all over the place talking to people, and it's Dave. Mm -hmm. So, but I'm saying that there's a whole realignment going on. That's not about you guys, but that you're going to be dealing with. So the establishment Republicans are dying. MAGA has taken over, right? And then in the Democrats, you know, it's not decided yet. We don't know yet if the Maoists are going to take over. Mm. And would you rather, do you want, do we want Maoists or we don't, or do we want the Clinton initiative to run the world? Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Burn it all. Does, I'm just going to die instead. How about that? <laughs> I'm just going to die instead. Yeah, well, I mean, see, they don't like each other, right? Because the Clinton Initiative is all about managing. These, this, these are, this is the empire. The Clintons and Obamas and Bidens, that's the American empire. That's a 120-year-old project. Built, as I said, built by progressives. That's what they are about. So that means not breaking too many eggs to make that omelet. Right? They have to have allies, and they have to have, most importantly, a loyal opposition in the Republican Party. So I don't know what that means, but you are entering an interesting new space. And the fact that you are about to become a very interesting new space makes American politics a whole new world very soon. I don't know. I just, I just wanted to lay that out there. Look what you're about to enter. A new era in American politics. This is a big, big deal. Elise Stefanik being made the whatever she was, I mean, that's, that's MAGA taking over, right? So you're going to be dealing with them on the one hand, who are 60% terrible and 40% kind of okay, and then you're dealing with the Democrats, who are a goddamn nightmare from top to bottom, from, back and from front to back. So, I don't know, that's that. All right, now, um, so the thing about <clears throat> being who you are, staying who you are, radicalism, you're the radical wing of the most radical party in the United States. Because <laughs> even under fuckhead Sarwark, I mean, I, I assume they were like more better on some things than the <laughs> They, hopefully, a little bit, I don't know, whatever, okay. Yeah, right? So you're the radical edge of the radical edge. And you've got to, as he's been saying, you've got to embrace that. If you want me to be your friend. <laughs> um, yeah, we're building Renegade University. We have a thousand members already. We're having a huge event starring him and four other people, including Scott Horton, um, in October in Texas. Um, and it's going to be Scott Horton, Cody Wilson, Hotep Jesus, Jack of the Perfume Nationalist. Anybody a fan? Brilliant, God. And Deirdre McCluskey. Oh, yeah. It's going to be an, this is going to be off the chain. Yeah, and Buck Johnson's house. Buck, you know, guy? Buck, yeah. Buck, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, yes, as Angela was saying, that is yours to use if you stay radical. <laughs> now, what do I want to talk about? I want to talk about, it's funny that a very large man is, is in my way right now because, <laughs> because, let me tell you, because I want to talk about the body. I want to talk about the body. And I started to talk about that when I, inter when I kind of um, interrupted earlier, talk, yelled at you guys about 
analyzing too much and not telling enough about stories, right? So you guys are known for having the highest IQ among all the political ideologies. You know that, right? Libertarians have the highest IQ, I think by far, actually. But it's kind of obvious just to hang out with you. Yeah. So I grew up I grew up with Marxists, right? And they were then the smartest people and not anymore. Now, and then I went and hung out with libertarians. Like, oh no, these people have the highest IQ. Here's the problem. They seem to only have a high IQ. <laughs> that was really insulting. Not an accurate. Not an accurate. Yeah, you've got some branding issues. You've got some branding issues, but the thing is, I think that you people, not the LP, but you people are capable of this, because what did he say? It's consistency. Who's consistent in the Libertarian Party? Yeah. Right? Uh, and then what was the other thing you said about um, reputation? Reputation, right? Fake reputation. Nicholas Sarwark's reputation <laughs> as the king of waffling, as the king of I will say whatever the CIA and MSNBC pay me to say, I guess. I don't know. I can't explain it any other way. But yeah, you have a chance to establish some really good branding. And I'm here in part to offer some suggestions about people you can use as historical figures. You notice how the left can't ever talk about the present? It's always about slavery and segregation. Everything is about slavery and segregation. Mm -hmm. Like tax policy. That reminds me of Reconstruction. <laughs> you cannot talk about it. Okay. So they have their whole like Hall of Fame that they constantly refer to and pretend to be and LARP as them, pretending to be Rosa Parks when they are uh, 18-year-old Yale student <laughs> who's upset that her dorm room doesn't have the proper sheets in it. I can't explain it anyway. All right, so here's what I would love for you guys to, some people I would like for you guys to think about. When you run this shit and you're like deciding who, who's on the postage stamps, <laughs> now it's getting fun. Yeah, well, okay. Please don't abolish the post office yet. Just, just wait on that. <laughs> or actually, just have stamps. <laughs> just have stamps so that we can celebrate really bad people in history. Okay, They're so. the only department that makes their own money in the government. Oh, really? Is the post office. Well, that whole story about the, the police agency with the law enforcement agency within the postal service that's like checking our social media? Mm -hmm. That seems fine. <laughs> the post office is looking at my social media? There's literally a TV show about, about mail cops. I'm not joking. I'm pretty sure it's a pool. A TV show. Which one's the pair of TV goes? Oh my goodness. Really? Yes. God damn. Okay, so um, so in the 18th century, the United States is getting together. Founding fathers are like hanging out in Philadelphia. And uh, for those of you who've read my book, you know what I'm talking about here. So Philadelphia in like the 1770s was nasty as shit. So it was just full of drunks, prostitutes, layabouts, slacking Irishmen, dancing slaves, dancing Irishmen, uh, and these like, there were these uh, taverns, brothels that had, there were lower class taverns in Philadelphia, New York, Boston, 
that the founding fathers to a man all despised, and this was one of the major reasons they waged the American Revolution, was these taverns. People don't understand this. They saw in those taverns debauchery, and they hated it. John Adams wrote about this extensively. So did Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin wanted all the taverns to be banned, in fact. Because in those taverns, you'd walk into a lower-class tavern in Philadelphia in 1770-anything, and you were going to see white people dancing with black people, white people playing music with black people and Native Americans. Women owned a majority of the lower-class taverns in all of the American cities in the 18th century. Women. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Prostitutes. Prostitution, the law against prostitution was basically unenforced, so you had prostitutes plying their trade in these places, right? Lots of drinking, you know? Um, and when the British occupied Boston and started putting troops in people's houses, right? Very famously, infamously, right? And uh, one night at a tavern in, in Boston, uh, people were really goddamn drunk, and um, Crispus Attucks was one of the people who was there, and he was really goddamn drunk. And Crispus Attucks was basically like a, he was like a bootlegger pirate. That's the thing. He gets glorified because he's a black man, so he's got to be perfect, right? Mm -hmm. And he's also the founder of our nation, so he's got to be super perfect. No, he was a rum bootlegger. I mean, I think that's perfect. <laughs> but it's just never mentioned because it's not respectable. So yeah, he was in that tavern that night with a bunch of other drunks and they heard that there were some redcoats down the street, and so they came charging out of that tavern, and they took on the redcoats, and a bunch of them got shot to death, and that's the Boston Massacre, and most historians agree that's the beginning of the American Revolution and the reason this country exists today as it does and why we're here, et cetera, et cetera. So a bunch of rowdy, violent drunks. <laughs> who were not keen on having a military occupation in their town. There's some people you could look to as models, right? Um, the prostitutes I keep mentioning, can't, I just can't stop talking about prostitutes. <laughs> and it's like I actually had a woman, when I first wrote the book, this is like 11 years ago, I gave a, I gave a book tour and I was at this college in Oregon and I'm giving the talk. I, I do with this woman like sitting right around there and, and she was just looking at me the whole time. I knew this was going to be trouble. I gave this whole argument about how prostitutes were the most empowered women in the 19th century and they pioneered all these freedoms and privileges that women now take for granted. They did hour-long lecture, you know, highly academic, very respectable, is wearing this, you know. <laughs> um, didn't curse, you know, all, I was very good, and she just, she's just looking at me, she's, first question, she's like, I don't believe you, I just think you want cheaper sex work. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, you know, I did spend about eight years writing this book because those flights to Thailand were getting so expensive. <laughs> I wanted to legalize global prostitution so that I could... <laughs> um, no, it's true. So the women, many, many women in the 19th century and earlier and earlier um, were good economists. You know, they understood supply and demand. So especially in like little western towns, right, where there were like 2,000 men and four women. Think about that. Think about the prices you could charge, which they did. And they got rich. The women who did that got rich, rich, rich. 
so much so that they bought real estate, especially in all the West Coast cities, LA, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, there were massive real estate owned by whores, brothel owners, madams, Jesse Heyman, the most famous one in San Francisco after the 1906 earthquake, most of the people who were helped, who received aid, welfare, like free food, housing, shelter, clothing, all that stuff, came from Jesse Heyman, who owned the biggest brothel in San Francisco. And you know what that's called, by the way, when the government will not give us what we need to survive? You know what that's called? And, someone, and other people do it voluntarily. You know what that's called? It's called mutual aid. You might have heard of it. Mm -hmm. Good old anarchist idea, principle, that was not practiced by anarchists. It was practiced mostly by people like that, by poor people. So across the South, black people under Jim Crow had mutual aid societies. David Beto, B-E-I-T-O, has written the amazing history of this. I strongly recommend you read this if you haven't. Immigrants, every immigrant group, had mutual aid societies in every city. And what did these mutual aid societies do? They provided health care. They provided health insurance. They provided life insurance. They provided sometimes housing, sometimes jobs, sometimes loans, sometimes grants. Right? All the things that the state then took over come the New Deal and then crowded them all out. That's why they no longer exist. So I really want to bring that tradition back. Community chess. Right? So, so Lainey Sweet, right? I was talking to her, and it's been five years, you know, and uh, people are, some people have said, oh, she's just raising money because she doesn't want to work, and that might be true. Uh, and I said to her, you know what, Lainey, I don't give a shit, because how much has the government given you to compensate you for shooting your husband to death when you have two daughters, ages three and six, by the way, shooting him to death? How much money have you received from the government? Not a dime. I said, oh, well, here's this old anarchist concept, Lainey. I said this on the podcast. It's called mutual aid. We are helping you when the government doesn't. And that's what we should do. That's what we need to do, obviously. And the more we do that, and the more that you do that, and the more that you get behind campaigns exactly like that, actually helping people and telling stories, telling those stories. For the first hour of that interview, we didn't talk about Danny. We talked about Lainey's story. I wanted, I wanted her to talk about herself, her story. What got her to this place? and why we should support her. Back to the prostitutes. <laughs> yeah, so um, imagine this, right? 1830s, 18th, 19th century Victorian America, right? So America had just gone through a Puritan phase, and to have a, and to have a really good time, it entered a Victorian phase, <laughs> where they had do you know about the Victorian era where like one of the fastest growing industries was uh, for, for devices that stopped you from masturbating? <laughs> like huge elaborate metal like chastity things for everybody, for men too. Chain mail for us. Serious. They were very into repression back then and they were very into women not being sexual. 
So tens of thousands of women in the, in the 19th century were placed into reformatories because they were promiscuous. And they were trained there to cook and clean and sew and raise children. Tens of thousands. In the 20th century, do you know what happened to those women? Women who were just simply promiscuous? They were forcibly sterilized by court order because they were considered to be genetically defective. This was eugenics. Do you know who, uh, which political uh, ideology is responsible for eugenics? Progressive. Mm. Because it's science, guys. <laughs> Trust the science. Trust the science. And I really need to talk to you libertarians about science, but uh, maybe we'll get to that. So um, imagine that, right? You're a woman in America, in that culture, and your idea is to make a bunch of money selling sex. But they did it, and they got rich, and they bought real estate, and from that they got power, and then they got political power. You could not become mayor of San Francisco without getting Jesse Heyman's approval. Lou Graham, who was the major brothel owner in Seattle, she built libraries, schools, hospitals. That's how rich they were and powerful they were, right? Um, what were they practicing in liberty? What's the libertarian term for what they were doing economically? Free, Agor free market. Agorism. Agorism. Counter economics. It was illegal. It was not just illegal, it was deeply, profoundly illicit morally. It was the worst thing a woman could do. Still is. Still is. When we see a sex worker now, we kind of think, you, don't we? As a culture, right? The stigma runs deep. But those women, you know what they did with their money? They paid their employees in the brothels way better than construction workers were paid. And certainly way, way better than women who took other professions. What were the professions that were open to women other than prostitution in the 19th century? The worst factory work and being maids. So these women were like scrubbing floors or working a few nights a week and making 50 times more. Hmm. They did it. They were the first women to walk alone in public without a male chaperone and most importantly without any shame. That's freedom. That's liberty. They were the first women, as I said, to earn high wages, to own property that was not their husbands. Remember, women in marriages did not have any legal right to the property of the family. These women owned their own stuff. They represented themselves in courts often. They became their own lawyers. They created the cosmetics industry. Makeup was not okay according to the Victorians. Only whores wore, wore lipstick. Only whores colored their hair. Only whores wore red or yellow or any bright color. Only whores showed any skin between here and the floor. But they did it. They did it in public. They did it without shame. And then this really funny thing happened, right? In the 1910s and 20s, all of a sudden, all these like regular normie women are like dressing like whores <laughs> and wearing makeup and cutting their hair short. The little bob, that was invented by prostitutes in New Orleans. We have photographic evidence of this in the 1910s. 
the little bob haircut in the 1910s. What happens in the 1920s with women hairstyle, women's hairstyles very famously? The flappers, right? The flapper style. Whores invented that. Flappers invent, took all of whore culture and put it right into the mainstream. And by the 1930s, I shit you not, the official portraits that still hang in the White House today of the first ladies, Herbert Hoover's wife, and oh, I forget her first name, and Eleanor Roosevelt have the flapper whore hairdo in those official portraits that still hang in the White House. <laughs> what did the short haircut represent? Why is this more important than just style? The Victorian style of hair was to make it as big and heavy as possible and pile it on top of the woman's head as high as it could go to represent the fucking crushing weight of being a mother in Victorian America. <laughs> Literally, I mean, it was a set. That was what was said. Mm. And so the the flappers were like, "Let's get rid of all this. Let's wear dresses that we can move in, right?" And that became the dominant culture <coughs> for women. Walking alone without a male chaperone in public, you were called a whore. Now I think that's allowed <laughs> because of them. Because of them, those are agorists. <coughs> Those were agorists violating the most profound norm in this country. And they won. And they changed this country and this culture, and they made the lives of everybody so much better. Not to mention sexual freedom. This was the first sexual revolution. They get credit for that. They were the first people in this country who were willing to talk openly about sexual freedom. All of that prostitutes, sex workers. This is why I have sex workers on my show like every month. <laughs> uh, <coughs> but let's talk about um, the original, well, I, I call them the original renegades that I think the Libertarian Party, if you take over, I think, I think they should be on every postage stamp, which is the slaves. And um, not all the slaves, but most of the slaves. So the slaves in this country are known for a couple things <laughs> compared to slaves in other countries. So they're known for not having any major rebellion. Nat Turner was actually a pretty small rebellion, and that was the biggest one. Compared to Jamaica, compared to Brazil, where they had like Haiti, where they had massive revolutions and killed lots of white people and took over, not, never happened, right? So, but what we had instead was, we had slaves, and we have just incredible amount of evidence of this. Slaves just not working very well. Just when the overseer turned his back, they dropped their hoe. <laughs> and then when the overseer turned around, they're like, yeah, no, so yeah. <laughs> By the way, right? Um, Frederick Law Olmsted, who designed Central Park, did a big tour of the South, wrote, I think, a two-volume book about it, and he, this is what he talked about. He's like, oh my god, on every plantation, the slaves just, they took every opportunity to stop working. Because, you know, because black people are biologically inferior, that's why they stopped working. Because white people, because we believe that work is good no matter what we get for it, if we were slaves by that logic, right? By Puritan logic, if we were slaves, we would continue to work. How the fucking sick and crazy whiteness has been? Yes, I'm talking about whiteness, maybe like an identity politics guy. 
but I'm not. <laughs> I'm talking about celebrating true radicals. I haven't mentioned Lysander Spooner yet, mm. have I? <laughs> Fuck Lysander Spooner. <laughs> See what I just did? Like, I, just, I did not come to play today. <laughs> Lysander Spooner, what did he say that I was like, I read him, I was like, nah, fuck this guy. He, he's a political actor. So in my book, there are no political actors. There's no explicit political statements. There's no manifestos, there's no speeches, there's no articles written. It's just people like those whores doing what they're not supposed to do. It's those slaves doing what they're not supposed to do. Please think about this. You're all intellectuals. You're all intellectuals. We all are intellectuals in this room. We all are thinkers, thinkers, thinkers. I want you to get out of the I'm one too. I want you to get into your bodies. And I want you to think about the politics of the body a little bit more here. Get out of your head and get into the body, and the body is where places like feelings are and where stories make sense suddenly. Right? That's in the that's down here, not not up here, right? Um, so slaves, right? They refuse to work, and what can the master do? He can whip them, which he did, but how much better is the slave gonna work after you whip him with a bullwhip? Do you think then he's going to be super efficient? Yes, master. Yes, master. No. Turns out George Washington wrote George Washington wrote a manual, a manual for slave owners, instructing them how to manage their slaves. And he said, "You must not use the lash unless absolutely necessary, because all you will get is less and less return." Of course, right? If you have a horse and you just beat the shit out of it all the time, is it going to do what you want? or a dog, or any, or a human being, most importantly, right? So the slaves, I think, on some level, and many historians have said this, I'm not the only one, on some level understood that, that they actually, they actually possessed power. Slaves. I'm so sorry Ta-Nehisi Coates and the 1619 Project and the New York Times and MSNBC and everybody who seems to think they know about this, slaves had power and they exerted it every chance they got. They were the best dressed people in the South. When I say that, people are like, now I know he's drunk. <laughs> um, the evidence for this is overwhelming, and in fact, my chapter just borrowed from an entire study done on this very topic. Um, slaves in the South, because they didn't ever internalize Puritanism and Victorianism, why the fuck would you? <laughs> if you have West African culture, and then you have the culture that they created themselves on the plantation, why on earth would you adopt Puritanism when you've got West African culture, right? Um, they, um, they established a distinctive culture on their own. And they knew that they had power because they knew that the master could not whip them to death because they understood that they were the most valuable property on the plantation. Again, there's like an understanding of economics in both cases, right? I don't know if they never said it. I don't know that they had this idea. But there's some fundamental understanding in both cases. With the prostitutes, they knew supply and demand, right? 2,000 men, four women, charge whatever you want. 
slaves understood that they were the most valuable, they were the most valuable property on the plantation. And they exploited the shit out of that. So they stole constantly, they refused to work well. The best thing is, you know what the slaves did? Oh, I forgot to say, the clothing. Um, they didn't inherit the Puritanism idea of being self-sacrificing and humble and modest in your dress. Because West African culture is all about bright col colors and exuberance, right? Um, and so they just either stole clothes from the masters or were given clothes from the owners or masters. Not all masters were just like sitting there whipping people. Like they had close relationships. But there are newspaper articles in every southern town and city throughout the early 19th century complaining about some huge slave festival or dance or party in which the, all the people there were dressed, and they would say this, like aristocrats and kings and queens. They dressed above their station. They dressed better than white people, and that's what was said. Because these people are biologically inferior, see? Because that's frivolous and trivial and trifling. And only biologically inferior people would bother to dress up when all you should be doing is working. Um, so I would suggest to the Libertarian Party that you just invert that moral code and say maybe that like partying and avoiding work might be better than working on <laughs> This lesson still has not gotten through to the American people, though. They still think that working is better. So that's some heroes you could have. Um, here's another set of heroes. I, I love them. And I don't have a name for any of them. This is just a whole class of people. This is young women, young immigrant women, young working class poor immigrant women who largely worked in factories in New York City and Philadelphia and Boston now are in the turn of the 20th century, so 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. So what's happening then in the economy? That is the birth of consumer capitalism. That's when they're no longer just making like I-beams and railroad tracks, but they're making stuff that feels good, tastes good, smells good, that you can buy in this brand new thing called a department store. Where you could, as a working class person, a woman who worked in a factory, you could walk into a department store and buy something that was made in France and take it <clears> home <throat> and wear it. That became possible then. Movies took off during this time, right? And women, working class women, were the main audience. Dime novels, Coney Island, fun shit. When capitalism started to be fun, this is when capitalism started to be fun, is the turn of the 20th century, right? Women were the ones who paid the money, who made that happen. If they weren't there paying the money to go to Coney Island, we would not have any fun in this culture. I call it shopping the real American Revolution. <laughs> That's the name of that chapter. And Anthony Gregory, does anyone know Anthony Gregory? He's a libertarian Californian, Berkeley. Yeah. He told me that that chapter made him cry. <laughs> because, yeah, because it's freedom. These women, think about being a woman in America before that time, you lived on a farm. Most likely, 90% of Americans did. A woman on a farm in the middle of nowhere with no property rights, and there's no transportation, and you can't buy anything from anything from anywhere outside like a 10 mile radius of your fucking town in the middle of Pennsylvania or wherever you are. 
and you are completely under the thumb of either your husband or your father or both, and you are on a goddamn farm that I mentioned that part, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you have cities like New York, and you have things to do, and they have money, and they have factories where they can get jobs, their own money, and they can get power. This is a libertarian story, yet none of these women ever talked in these terms. So you should have, you should have Coney Island, the women of Coney Island, where, by the way, they also had a lot of sex. Coney Island is where you went to go hook up. Okay. Uh, and then I want to finish with the last person, and then we'll jump into the 20th century. Um, in Canton, Mississippi, in the 1950s, a man named C.O. Chin, he started, he opened a rhythm and blues nightclub in Canton, Mississippi. Canton, Mississippi was known as one of the most violently segregationist places in the United States of America under Jim Crow. C.O. Chin started a nightclub that was a rhythm and blues nightclub, and it became the major rhythm and blues nightclub of Mississippi. So Little Richard went there, Ray Charles played there, Aretha Franklin, and from that, he made a lot of money, because all every black person from the entire area would come there. C.O. Chin used that money to then start a bootlegging business. Mm -hmm. And he made even more money. Now he's an agorist, right? He's never talking about that. He's never using that word, certainly. He becomes an agorist, makes even more money as a bootlegger. With that money, you know what he did? He bought a whole bunch of guns. <laughs> he bought a whole bunch of guns, and he got a whole bunch of other black men around Canton, Mississippi to form, you know what it was? A goddamn militia. In the 1950s, in Canton, Mississippi, niggers with guns. The scariest three words ever spoken. <laughs> and what we stand for is it not, and I need you to use this word because we are adults, do we not want more niggers with guns? <laughs> that seems an obvious policy you know, plank for you guys. <laughs> STEM fields. This has always been my, my problem with libertarians. Okay? I, I don't do math and stuff. I can't do long divisions too hard for me. Um, and so science, okay. Um, so there's this thing called scientism. It's this term that academics developed and now, by the way, the Trump people are all into it, which is kind of weird for me, but anyway. Um, so that just simply means the treatment of science as a religion. So the enlightenment, right, real quick, Right? replaced one religion, or sorry, replaced ostensibly, replaced religion with science. Some of us have said it replaced religion with a different religion. Now, that doesn't mean that science is wrong and we shouldn't practice science. Science is the practice of skepticism, relentless skepticism, right? 
constantly disproving hypotheses is what scientists do. The belief, the faith that scientists are right and should be abided by and listened to, that is scientism. That they have a special pathway to truth that the rest of us don't have. That is scientism. Trusting, trusting their authority, allowing them to make decisions, not just for society, but much more importantly, back to the theme of my talk here, our bodies. See where I'm going? Mm -hmm. The belief in scientists as the ultimate authorities, that's what got us where we are with this COVID nightmare. That's why when last year, everybody should watch this, Jeffrey McCullough, this doctor who was on Tucker Carlson the other day, has anyone seen this interview? It's the most amazing thing on COVID I've ever seen, which is saying a whole lot because I've read pretty much everything. So he's a doctor who's credentialed, he's the head of a major medical association, big deal doctor. He says that there has been effective treatment for COVID, very effective treatment for COVID since last summer, a lot of, some of us know this, and that the NIH guidance says that doctors should not use any treatment until a person cannot breathe on their own. It is illegal, a doctor will go to prison in Australia for treating a COVID patient with ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine mm -hmm. or anything. Mm -hmm. There are four to five medicines, this doctor said, that, been, that are used every single day with every single COVID patient that are not allowed or are told that shouldn't be used. But we just were like, Tony Fauci's a scientist. Mm -hmm. The doctors who are saying we should do this are scientists. The NIH is all scientists. So that must be true. Funded, so, funded by Bill Gates. Funded by all kinds of people. So the skepticism is still away. And we are where we are, which is on the brink of totalitarianism. So I hope you win. I hope that you stay radical. I hope that you look to those people from the past, maybe, as examples of how to be, how to be in the world. How to, how to really think about your body as well as your mind. Your intellect is unimpeachable. You have the best intellects. You have nothing to worry about there. I want you to start thinking more about feelings, what the body represents, and stories. That was such an important point. Stories, where the feelings are, that's how you move people, that's how you change things, that's how you're gonna win, and that's how you're gonna change the culture. And that is what's standing between us, I believe, Shit, you're the only ones. And totalitarianism. So thank you. Yeah.